This is the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, episode 83. Welcome to the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, where we teach wealth building hacks for lawyers, engineers, and MBAs. I'm your host, Andrew Chen. All right, thanks so much again for tuning into the podcast. For today's episode, I invited another guest to come and share their tips and strategies and insights with us. So before we jump into that, as always, I want to invite you to join the private Hack Your Wealth Facebook group. You can access that at hackyourwealth.com slash FB. Definitely encourage you to join us there. It is a place for us to connect, have a two-way dialogue. I'm in there every single day, often multiple times a day, and I try to respond to every question and comment there. And it's a place where people can ask about financial independence, early retirement, tax strategies, real estate investing, side business income, online income, career transitions, career advice, or just ask about whatever's on their mind related to personal finance or career-related issues. Definitely encourage you to check that out. It's a great, friendly, helpful group of people, and we would love to have you there. Again, hackyourwealth.com slash FB. All right, let's jump in to today's interview. My guest today is Steve Parrish. Steve is the co-director of the Center for Retirement Income at the American College of Financial Services, where he also serves as an adjunct professor. He is also an adjunct professor of estate planning at Drake University Law School. He has over 40 years of experience as an attorney and financial planner, focusing on retirement and estate planning, financial planning, and tax strategy to help individuals and business owners build up and draw down their retirement portfolios tax efficiently. He's a contributor to Forbes and Kiplinger and has also been cited in MarketWatch and U.S. News and World Report, among other publications. He speaks frequently to attorneys at bar associations and estate planning councils and to CPAs at industry seminars. Steve, thanks so much for joining us today to share your insights and wisdom on how to draw down a retirement portfolio as tax efficiently as possible. My pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. I'd love to start just by um, learning a little bit more about your background. How did you get into retirement and estate planning advisory work in the first place and ultimately what you're doing now in terms of academic research? Sure. I'd be glad to talk about that. So if we go uh, way back in history, uh, after I... uh, uh, passed the bar exam, I decided, you know, I really don't want to pass. I don't really want to practice law. And so I went out and got something that was new back then called a chartered financial consultant uh, designation and started this uh, whole new thing of financial planning back then and became a financial planner for several years. That ultimately led me into an executive position with a financial service company. And, and that was what I did a lot of my career, where I had a team of accountants and attorneys and MBAs who basically provided advanced services and support for um, retail advisors uh, working with their clients. And then about uh, six years ago, since the topic is retirement, I retired, if you want to use that term, from my uh, financial service company and went into um, academe kind of as my uh, in my third encore career, if you will. And so, uh, as, as you indicated, I uh, co-director Retirement Income Center uh, at the American College with somebody that's pretty well known, Dr. Wade Fow. And what we do is we're, we're essentially thought leaders. Uh, we try to, we provide a designation on retirement income, the RICP, we uh, do a lot of writing. Uh, you're aware of my work with Forbes. Uh, Wade just came out with a great new retirement book, which is doing very well on, on um, uh, Google. And um, also we uh, do a lot of interviewing with publications and that kind of thing so that we can get the word out about retirement income planning. Okay, perfect. That's that's great context. Um, okay, so just to set the stage for our discussion today, um, I wanted to kind of preamble that, you know, in some sense, optimizing retirement withdrawals is straightforward in that what you're solving for is to generate sufficient monthly cash to live on and join retirement while simultaneously minimizing your overall tax liability and ideally avoiding adverse consequences to things like, you know, parts of Medicare, Social Security taxes, even benefits like health and health exchange subsidies, if that's part of the pictures, all of which are impacted by your income level in retirement. Retirement, and also all the meanwhile continuing to try to get the best 
risk-appropriate return on the rest of your portfolio that hasn't been drawn down yet. But right. many factors impact what that right withdrawal strategy is going to be for your spe- uh, specific situation, like your asset allocation and location, the taxable status of your accounts, your tax bracket, your RMD timeline, the timing and account of your other income sources like pension and Social Security, and obviously how the market itself is performing for your investments. So given the complexity of accurately analyzing all these drivers to determine the best withdrawal strategy to you know your own specific situation, what are the most important principles or guidelines that retirees should know about when it comes to determining what assets to draw down in retirement and in what sequence? Uh, it's a good way to frame the question because uh, several times you use the term risk and then return. And one of the most important principles to keep in mind for retirement planning is the way you look at risk and return changes when you go into retirement. Think about it this way. When you are are investing for retirement, um, what's your return is whatever you get on your portfolio, right? What's your risk is that it might go down and you might have default on particular securities. But once you're in full-blown retirement, Really, risk and return are two different things. Um, there are two new things. Return is whatever you draw down. In other words, it's not what you got in your portfolio. It's what am I taking out each year because that's the return. What's my risk is that you run out of money before you run out of oxygen, if you will. In other words, um, that it, it doesn't maintain itself. So that's probably the key thing is you really have to look and say, I'm going to decumulate my portfolio once I get to retirement. So I have to think about the return as being what I pull down versus what I make in my money. Uh, Two others to think through is it's a process, not an event. So it's not like, okay, I hit whatever age, 50 or 65 or 70 and say, um, now I'm going to withdraw four and a half percent and that's it because really retirement's dynamic. So you go from those go-go years where you go out and see, I don't know, the kids or the grandkids or go to Disney World or whatever, to the slower growing uh, years where you're kind of maybe relegated to the rocking chair to the no-go years where um, you might have um, be frail. So because of that, you really have to look at that withdrawal strategy as a dynamic thing, not as just a flat I'm going to take four and a half percent and let it, uh, you know, accumulate with um, inflation. And the the one other I would bring up is retirement. How are you going to define retirement for financial purposes is going to be different than for personal purposes. Mm-hmm. So on one spectrum, I'm on Medicare, I'm on Social Security, but I'm not retired in any shape or form of that, um, just because of what I do. On the flip side, if somebody is going to retire early. Um, if you look at them, they might be leaving the industry. They might be now uh, doing volunteer work, whatever, and so retired personally. But from a financial standpoint, they are not retired because they have not hit Medicare age. They're, they shouldn't be taking down Social Security. So you have to define what you mean by retirement. And that depends on what you're looking at for your personal or for your financial. Yeah, those are good insights. Um I like that kind of frame that you mentioned. The you call it the go-go, slow-go, and no-go years. Yeah. Do you do you t- um, uh, sort of it, it, um, when you look at you know broad sets of people? Do you tend to see that people should be preparing more financially, uh, like a, a bigger financial cushion? Like they should ramp up their expected drawdowns as they you know advance through those years or do expenses actually tend to come down because you know maybe you're not traveling anymore i'm just wondering like how health right. and like travel kind of offset each other well research tells us that actually goods and services uh tend to inflate in the early years for uh for true retirees and i don't know if it's because they you know have their somebody mowing their lawn or what but their spending levels and this is at the macro level everybody's going to vary uh, does not keep up with inflation. And it makes sense. They're not going out as, as they get older. They're not going out to the movies and to dinner and vacations and that kind of thing as much. So they don't spend as much as inflation might be doing. So what you're really looking at, and you have to take each person individually. In some cases, particularly affluent people, they may actually want to think about, they may actually be taking down more in the early years of retirement than they were taking in their working years because they have the time and the ability to do it. So I have friends who retired and they spend all their time, it seems, going into Amazon and buying things. 
but the reality is normally it will go down and, and appreciably so with the one thing that is hard to guess and that's health. Um, mm -hmm. The fact is near death, you will normally see a spike in the expenses, but that's because of the way things work where suddenly you have X days in the hospital before you die. But generally your expenses would normally go down. Got it. So if I imagine two scenarios, so um, I, I think you kind of, um, uh, you're like the exceptional case where like you're in financial, I think you call it financial retirement, but not in actual retirement because mm -hmm. you're, um, you know, still doing all this great academic research for a normal retiree who um, coincides actual and financial retirement together. And for uh, that's case A and case B is uh, a, an early retiree who actually retires before financial retirement, um, you know, mm -hmm. a bunch of those uh, entitlements kick in. Uh, I wonder if um, there are any additional uh, insights or uh, principles or guidelines that you would uh, urge each of these two groups to bear in mind as they think about like how to ensure that they don't outlive their portfolios? Certainly. Um, for the, the classic person that's retiring um, and truly retiring at that same time, and by the way, more and more uh, research tells us that's um, not the norm, <laughs> but but uh, I mean, more and more people are doing phased retirements because they can. Hmm. But to to address that one, the important thing I think for them is to realize that it's going to feel like retirement is an event because you do Social Security, you do Medicare, um, you stop working, um, and 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 so you make all your decisions, you take your four and a half percent, and you're done. That's not a good way of looking at it because again, just like you're growing uh, when you're working, you're also going to have a whole different uh, path, and it may be 30 years or maybe 40 years if you retire early in retirement. So you you can't look at retirement planning as that magic day when you get the gold watch and they have the party for you. Hmm. Uh, for the ones that really want to retire before the government benefits like Medicare and all those kick in, I think very much in that you've got two things. One, uh, just the very obvious issue of health insurance. You've really got to address that. And what am I going to do and how am I going to cover that? The other gets into... Um, how do you deal with your portfolio because you're you're potentially looking at 40 years or 30 or 40 years and so you're going to have to have more things built in to deal with black swan events inflation that kind of thing than i will when i someday get around to retiring in my 70s so it's it's very important with the younger retirees that they really are looking at things like inflation um, having some kind of a buffer, it just makes sense because it's such a long period of time they'll be retired, hopefully. You know, for um, retirees who have some alternate, um, you know, reasonably stable in alternate incomes, like a passive income source, such as real estate rental income, that maybe they have a mortgage on now, but in retirement will become free and clear and suddenly spike up. How should, like... Like, right. how should a retiree um, or a would-be retiree who anticipates this happening, um, how should they think about the planning of their portfolio drawdowns so that, you know, not only do they not outlive their portfolio, but their portfolio doesn't, like, drastically outlive them with, yeah. like... Mm -hmm. um, like tons left over, right? That they, I mean, for sure they could pass it down through uh, to, as legacy to their um, kids, friend, you know, kids and family. But um, if uh, they actually wanted to uh, make sure they didn't die with like tons and tons in the bank, uh, how are there any principles that you would advise kind of this this group of folks to think about? Yeah, uh, first of all, look at those sources of income because again, we're talking about an early retiree, so we're talking about a lot of years. And so you ask yourself, how safe is it? Uh, an example is uh, working with somebody very recently, well, actually it was a few years ago when he had to really look at his retirement in two different ways because he had a very lucrative deferred compensation agreement. Well, the deal with deferred comp is it's only as good as the company is, it's not guaranteed. And so he had to do his planning if the deferred comp continued or if the company didn't make it. Guess what? About 
fast forward about 12 years, the company didn't make it. So he had done some planning so that he suddenly didn't go from uh, six figure spending every year to social security. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one thing. How safe is it? Um, the other thing to look at is how are the assets you're talking about? Like real estate's a good example. Is it likely to stay up with inflation uh, long term? Um, you would hope that stocks would. You would hope that real estate would. Um, you can't expect an annuity or something like that because it's it's contractual. So you first look at what is the source of that. Um, the other is if you know you have those sources of income coming in, Here's one way to look at it is with whatever else you have, a portfolio of equities, that kind of thing, maybe you get more aggressive because you've got a floor. You're eventually going to get Social Security. Let's assume that. And you're going to have these sources of income that should continue rents or real estate, that type of thing. And so maybe with your portfolio, if if your stomach's up for it, um, you could get a little more aggressive because the downside of that is maybe you have to put off that European vacation versus eating cat food and living in your car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. It's almost like if I kind of am hearing correctly, it's almost like um, potentially thinking about, say, real estate rental income or some alternate income that you have in that regard. Maybe it's a pension or whatever as like a bond-like instrument so that uh, right. it, that gives you the stability that normally, say, fixed income would. So you can go a little bit more aggressive on your, your liquid portfolio. Correct. And I, and I would add, this is a good point to bring up one other point, um, is depending how early you retire, the other most important asset you have, which you can either let uh, go away or um, preserve, is your human capital. So um, if you're really like, you know, going to retire as a, a fire, <laughs> if you're really going to retire early, you also ought to be figuring out, is it worth it? Maybe the answer is no, but is it worth it? To maintain my human capital by keeping up my licenses, no, you know, stay current on the industry and everything else, so that if you have to, you know, things go crazy, you have a black swan event, hypothetically a recession of 2008, hypothetically a uh, pandemic, um, that you could at least tap into that asset, which is your ability to go back to work if you need to. Do you find that people, um, how should? The, it's it sounds like a lot of work, right? If you're in medicine or law, because yeah. like the industry, these industries, there's new knowledge that always comes out. Like I actually, I, I work in the technology industry where it's like things move at lightning speed. Um, if you're not actually working in the job, it, it, first of all, firstly, it can be harder to just maintain, to stay sharp, right? And stay right. abreast of all the current knowledge and it takes time. And then like psychologically, maybe it actually just isn't retirement. Um, do you find that people do this freak commonly like out of uh, the human the fear that human capital will atrophy and you know what if they need to use that as a fallback and and perhaps it's just because of personal experience and what i do but but my answer is basically going to be yes so many of my affluent friends are coming from a some kind of professional background and um yeah i know you have things like continuing education and all that but right now in this labor market, uh, there is a value to us gray hairs. And so um, a lot of them do that. I think they're worried as, oh, I don't want to continue to pay my uh, bar association fees or do continuing ed. But I guess my suggestion would be, at least in the early years, it's a worthwhile investment in you because not only are we worried about you know, a recession or a, a black swan event, but also, guess what? A lot of these people were hard chargers. They thought they were going to golf every day and go, uh, no, this isn't working. And I can tell you a lot of friends who basically uh, went back to work after a few years because they realized they liked work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, all right. Um, some, some conventional advice suggests that you should withdraw RMDs first since the tax penalty on those are highest, then your taxable accounts, then your tax deferred accounts, finally your tax-free accounts. Uh, first of all, I wonder if you could comment, like, is conventional wisdom here sound advice? And if the answer is not always, then what are the kind of circumstances or situations when it might not be appropriate to sequence your withdrawals in this way? Well, a good way to handle that is um, so many of these are rules of thumb. And rules of thumb can really get you in trouble. There's a great uh, retirement planner named uh, Dana Emsbach who came up with this great analogy. She said, you know, if you know you're going to go from New York 
to LA, a rule of thumb is go west. You know, that's that's pretty accurate. But once you start going, you probably better have a map or a GPS or whatever. So that that rule of thumb that says, well, let's let's be real efficient in how we pull these down sounds great. But I'm uh, personally, I think uh, the exceptions tend to swallow the rules uh, sometimes when you get into it. Um, first of all, if you are holding off on things like IRAs because um, you're not paying tax now, the trouble is that throws you someday into a higher tax bracket. And what people don't get about taxes is sure uh, when you pay taxes, you're gonna net more or net less, I'm sorry. And if uh, your income goes up too much, you're gonna go into a higher bracket. They get that, but what they don't get is as soon as you start popping up your income, it's gonna affect a bunch of other things. Mm -hmm. So the classic one for affluent people is um, Medicare Part B premiums. And uh, I'll just give you an example of last year in the pandemic because it happened to me as I was looking at my taxes and realized I was just a few hundred dollars at my modified adjusted gross income into the next bracket where I would have a 40% increase in the Part B premium I would have to pay uh, for Medicare. All I had to do was uh, put a, I don't know, $1,500 or something into an IRA and I made that go away. So what I'm getting at is you really can't just, it's, it's, it's fun, it's easy to say, oh, I'll just, uh, this is gonna be my strategy. But really uh, you need to work through that because in most cases with affluent people, what you're gonna want to do is typically the main thing is take out your after-tax money first because you've already paid tax on it, let the other money accumulate. But you might as well start taking bits and pieces of that each year um, to the extent it doesn't push you into another tax bracket. And, and right now, now obviously in Congress, they're thinking about changing this, but right now the brackets between the 22nd, uh, 22 and 24%, for example, you're like $90,000. So you could be taking down some of your IRA money and it's not gonna increase, it's gonna increase your tax, but it's not gonna increase your tax bracket. So that, that makes sense so that your um, Roths and those kind of things can continue to build up tax-free and you can access them later. And then we can talk about it maybe later, but when you talk about wealthy people, you completely flip the switch because the issue is a 40% estate tax versus a 37% income tax. So you flip it and you want to take out your taxables first. Hmm. So you really, you know, it'd be nice if I could give you just a, here's an easy answer, but those rules of thumb can kind of uh, get in the way because the exceptions are swallowed by the rule. Rule is swallowed by the exceptions. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's an interesting way to think about it. Um, I, I'm reminded a while back I read a uh, this article um, Michael Kitsis has written before about the strategy of spending from taxable accounts first in retirement, but then like topping up all yep. the way up to your marginal tax bracket in the, especially in the early retirement years by doing partial Roth conversions. If you expect that future direct withdrawals from your IRAs and 401ks will ultimately face like even higher effective tax rates compared to the marginal rate you, you would face now just by topping up mm -hmm. uh, with Roth conversions. So, um, I, I think that's a lot in directionally where um uh where you were indicating like you might want to just think about how to optimize in that way. Curious if you have any thoughts about that strategy overall, uh and um uh uh yeah ad advice on this front. Right, and and if you look at a, the the big writers in retirement income, uh, there's a pretty good agreement. I, I don't think you're going to find people saying yes, but to that. Point. So Michael has done things for the American College and Wade Fow, uh, uh, Bill Reckenstein, all the people are basically saying the same thing. And really, you can model it out um, either, you know, with your own calculator or, or with software where you really take it as close as you can get to the marginal tax bracket. Um, and again, as you said, it doesn't have to necessarily mean you're taking the money out. It could be doing Roth conversions. So you're not, if you don't need the money, it's kind of like, oh, well, I don't want it, but fine. But then use that as an opportunity to convert into a Roth because the other thing that people don't think about, I'll just add one level to that thinking is you, you referenced it earlier is you may have a legacy to pass on to your kids. And as somebody um, who's my age versus yours, you become very aware as you get into that age of leaving a legacy and you'd like to, if you can. 
So the fact is, at some point, if you're particularly if you're affluent and definitely if you're wealthy, you need to start worrying about the taxes of the next generation. Hmm. So if you can do some conversions to a Roth, that's going to avoid having to take required minimum distributions. That's going to mean after you've passed on, they're going to get the, this money, but they're going to get it on a tax-free basis rather than taxable. That's an additional gift coming from you. So you, but my point is you shouldn't just worry about whether the Democrats are going to increase taxes in the future. It's more than, than that. It's really the whole process of looking at the family um, in your planning rather than what's, you know, how much tax you're going to pay next year. Right. You, you know, you talked a little bit about like the ability to model this. Um, my intuition is that you, you actually have to project a bunch of things when you're trying to f optimize in this way. Mm -hmm. um, you have to project when you think your taxable portfolio might run out, how much you would need to withdraw annually from your IRAs and 401ks after that point to fund you know, your desired lifestyle, how much you'll therefore have left over in those IRAs and 401ks mm -hmm. once RMDs kick in, and what marginal tax bracket and effective tax rate you think that will put you in both before and after RMDs. Uh, it's a it feels like a significant amount of tax modeling and portfolio growth and tax rate assumptions you'd have to make. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that feels challenging for normal retirees to do this scientifically. So I'm wondering if you have any advice for how retirees can make... Um, the, these kind of decisions or optimization in a quantitative way so they have confidence in this decision without like basically become mm -hmm. a, pro a professor at the American College. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and a few things. First of all, uh, close counts. So, um, you know, we can get pretty precise with software and say this is what it says, but we all know, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Uh, the fact is, if tax rates for an individual stay the same, it makes no difference whether you put it in an IRA or a Roth IRA mathematically. So always give yourself some, some wiggle room as far as doing that. Second, um, involve an advisor. I mean, just have to be straightforward on this is uh, none of us are as smart as all of us. And, and so uh, this kind of stuff um, doesn't work all that well for DIY modeling. And I'm not against uh, DIY. I do a lot of it myself, but still that kind of stuff um, it's kind of like you, you don't go into WebMD and, and figure out how to do surgery either. Um, the other one is if you do some of this and think this is more than I want to handle, realize what happens with people when they retire is sometimes their interest in finance uh, goes away because they enjoy the grandkids and golfing and all that, and they don't want to be bothered. There are alternatives, but you only want to do the alternatives if you thought it through. So an example is now that the stretch IRA really is effectively gone away for most people, maybe you do an alternative. So maybe you've been building up your IRAs and an idea is you could, if you're healthy enough, buy life insurance, make your kids or whoever your heirs are the beneficiary of that. And then each year you peel off a little bit of your IRA. Yes, you pay tax on it, but you're, you're spreading out your taxes. And now you've basically made a tax-free bequest to your kids. And, you know, frankly, Andrew, that's just easier. I'm not saying it's the right thing for all people, but that would be an example of after you look at it, you go, I don't want to do all this modeling. Uh, let's keep it simple. So those are some thoughts. Okay. Um, sequence of returns risk is basically mm -hmm. the risk that your portfolio gets low or negative returns soon after you retire, say because of a recession, a 2008, for example, gets hammered so badly that making retirement withdrawals on top of that, like mortally wounds the portfolio so it can never really quite recover. Uh, that's probably the most significant risk that can jeopardize a retiree's drawdown plan and their retirement security. Um, what can retirees and soon to be retirees do to protect themselves from sequence risk. And I mean, like no one has a crystal ball and no one can predict how the markets will perform, where and how long peaks and troughs will be. So how can retirees or near, near retirees strike the optimal balance between, you know, protecting against sequence risk as best they're able, but also not being so risk averse as to just hold cash equivalents and let inflation eat away their purchasing power? Exactly. And right now, I think that's the scariest issue out there for people that have enough money to, to worry about it. But that's basically mass affluent up, have to worry about sequence of return. And let me emphasize something because 
prior generations didn't have as big an issue because they might have had a defined benefit plan or something like that. So the sequence of return issue is more the employer than themselves. Now everybody's sitting on 401k accounts and so it is their issue and it's not someone else's issue. Um, and I am really worried now because we've seen the, the, grass, the, the great resignation as they call it, uh, that started with COVID-19. And now we're hearing people say, uh, at least at the time of this recording, the market's hot. And so I have enough money in my 401k, I can retire earlier than I expected. And that's the very kind of language that says they don't understand sequence of return. So we know what the issue is. is you, you, you know, it's like the Great Recession, uh, you retire in 2008. And the next thing that happens is you get a 30% drop. And suddenly you're taking out too much money. Um, we sometimes refer to a red zone, maybe five years before your planned retirement and five years after where the sequence of return risk is and the strategies that you can take. I mean, there are really practical things you can do that aren't super complicated um, is first of all, um, try to uh, look for a portfolio that's maybe a little more conservative during the red zone. And I don't mean going all the cash or anything even close to it, but if you were modeling out a 60, 40 or something like that uh, with equities to cash equivalents, you could tone it down a little, at least as you directly approach it. Somebody that's going to retire this year, that's a good thought because we are obviously sitting on a high market and I'm not saying forever. The other thing is you referenced uh, Michael Kitchis and I referenced uh, Wade Fow. Both of them have done some interesting studies that uh, prove out this point is maybe you look and say some of these equities that I have that are doing very well, but are sitting on high PE ratios, price to earnings, maybe even if you're convinced they're the, the hottest thing since canned beer, you back off on them simply because um, the research we've looked at is the safe withdrawal rate is going to be much more protected um, if, if you're in markets that are sitting in high PE ratios and you back off, back those off a little bit. That's just a fairly practical thing you can do during that, uh, that period of time. Um, the one other thing I'd mention is we always think about sequence of return as you're, you're going into it, but what happens when you're in it? So you were gonna pull down four and a half percent of your portfolio and suddenly it's 2022 and the market goes down what do I do now? Remember, if, you, if you've done some good planning, you might tap into other sources. So examples would be maybe you have um, cash value and life insurance, or maybe you have a home equity where you could set up a reverse mortgage and tap into that. So if it happens to you, if you have some buffer assets, that's the very time where you leave your equities alone, hopefully they'll recover, and you tap into some of these other sources so that you don't have to, you know, uh, sell sell low and buy high. Yeah, you you know, you mentioned like in the the five years preceding leading up, but then also during. Um, you know, there's I've read you know uh, um, a bunch of uh, thought leadership around you know creating a bond tent where you mm -hmm. you uh, phase into. Uh, fixed income heavy, but then you phase out uh, as you enter retirement because you know by definition you're uh, if you're uh, if you're doing that then sequence you're basically ramping back into equities as your sequence risk exactly as your sequence risk is also toning down because you're you're making it through those first few years. Mm -hmm. Do you generally advise um, or believe that a tenting strategy uh, in that way is is prudent, or are there situations where it, it does not make sense? Um, I, th I think it's definitely one to look at. So the issue there is like bond laddering, where you kind of figure out when those are going to hit. Makes a lot of sense. It's not particularly friendly from a tax standpoint. So realize if you, realize if you buy deep discount bonds, you're still going to have an annual tax event. But that way, at least you know uh, what's coming. Um, another one could be Nowadays with annuities, they're getting so much better at being able to target exactly when annuity might pay out. So um, using maybe a single premium immediate annuity that's only for a period of years um, is, is another way of going at it. So yeah, I, um, the, the challenge is, is people are gonna look at that and say, uh, that's pretty tricky, but that is when you're most exposed. Oh, and I know the third one I'd bring up, um, not a lot of people are gonna do it, but 
with the right people um, doing uh, options callers. So in other words, uh, you know, covering a, a put with a call just during the sequence of return period of time is not the worst idea because it's cutting off the risk of it going down um, and maybe it's not going up that much because you have to sell that call, but it's it's sandwiching it in so that you're kind of hanging in in those tough years. Again, the thought is you are decumulating your portfolio. So when you're going to get burned the most is just when you retire, when that portfolio is the biggest. So any of those strategies could help. Okay. Um, is there a... Um, a, a rule of thumb, and I know there's always exceptions, but, um, you know, a, a absent a specific scenario, I guess we can only speak in, in su at some level uh, in abstraction, but is there any rule of thumb that you uh, would uh, advise folks to think about when sequence risk greatly diminishes? Like, is it 10 years into retirement, then you no longer, uh, you can kind of uh, let your guard down a little bit? Or is it? does it really, again, depend on facts and circumstances, like how much portfolio you have, what's your withdrawal rate, how old are you, what's your life expectancy, et cetera? Well, it's all those things, but I think the way you can look at it is to ask yourself, what's my floor? In other words, how much safe retirement income do I have? Uh, Social Security, reasonable rents coming off of uh, real estate, uh, a pension, those kind of things. So that you can look and say, what's my downside? Again, you know, cat food and living in your car or just not getting to go to Europe. Um, once you've done that, then you, you have a lot more room on figuring out what you do with the sequence of return because sequence of return is a, deals with one issue. It deals with taking capital and turning it into income. So if, if you've structured in a way that your capital if something horrible happens is still not going to cause horrible situation, then the sequence of return issue goes away pretty quickly. Hmm. If you are totally living off of capital, then yeah, you better keep sequence of return in there for a long time and at least protect your, what we call the longevity tail. Uh, maybe, you know, I, I'm not talking about a lot of money, but maybe buy a deferred income annuity that starts at 75 or something. So at least you're not, going to get live longer than you expected because of medical technology or or good habits and suddenly not enjoy the uh, tail part of your retirement sure sure um by the way are there any um <clears throat> i guess metric uh heuristics that folks can look at to or th or that you you advise on uh, looking at <clears throat> in determining you know whether you're directionally maybe in a hot zone or a um, a safer zone, such as like, I think a lot of people talk about things like the CAPE ratio, cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio. Are there things, <clears throat> pardon me, are there things like that, that uh, you encourage folks to uh, look at so that they can uh, have some sense of where they might be in the cycle? Because, you know, as you, as you alluded to earlier, it's obviously different than uh, if you felt you were ready to retire <laughs> right before the financial crisis at 2008 versus if you felt you were ready to retire in the depths, the throes of recession in 2010, but you nevertheless still felt ready, <laughs> yeah. then you only, you only had upside from there, right? For many, many, many years. Um, are there any uh, metrics that folks can look at as a rule of thumb to kind of get that directional sense? Well, a full confession that I started as a tax attorney more than as a, a PhD in finance, I'm going to disclaim and say, what they tell me versus what I know. Um, but again, uh, people like Kitchis and some of the others have very much pointed to the, the PE uh, ratio being a big one, just because it's almost like the canary in the coal mine saying, look out. Um, so any kind of thing that gives you that's uh, futures based um, will tell you. And then some of it is a little bit common sense of just looking at where you are historically in the market, because um, you look at, you know, I've referred to the, the four and a half percent rule because I assume most people know that. And that's historically based. Well, the, the whole challenge you have there is that was based on U.S. securities and in a century that was pretty good, you know, last century. So one of the things we have to look at is really how look at it on a global basis. So any work you do, you should be looking at um, any kind of it's not heuristics, but at least any kind of measures that are global rather than just U.S. stocks and that kind of thing. 
And also, um, a lot of us would say, be give it some kind of a haircut, because it's just not fair to assume that we'll constantly have a situation where, where our recessions lasted for only short periods of time and uh, inflation was very low. That's not a reasonable assumption, um, especially if you're a young retiree going for a long period of time. So whatever you do in coming up with that, give it a haircut and keep an eye out for when any, whenever you get the tulips type effect, <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about mm -hmm. there, where everybody says it's a sure thing. If you're getting... Uh, you know, a 20 to one uh, PE ratio, you better be worried as far as long-term viability. Okay. Um, I wanted to shift a little bit since you mentioned kind of your background in, 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 um, in law, like if you could comment a little bit about like, what are the most important legal and, and maybe even tax tools or techniques in terms of things like utilizing tax-free gifts or specialized trusts, donor advised funds, things of that nature that in your view, folks may want to consider using in the final years leading up to retirement, as well as maybe even in retirement to help them maximize tax efficiency of their withdrawal uh, with their drawdowns. Okay. One is to reemphasize what I said before. Don't look at taxes as just, um, I pay more taxes. Um, I have less net. You really have to think about these, I call them thresholds. And you have to watch out for them. And you really, a good way of going at this is to analyze where you're going to be. Are you going to be kind of a middle income person in retirement? Are you going to be an affluent person or a wealth? I, I really think if you use those three wealthy, if you use those three definitions or those three categories, it'll help because if you are going to be middle income from a tax standpoint, the things you have to watch out for, and I, I assume you're aware of the concept of a tax torpedo, but as weird as it sounds, you could actually have your social security have a effective marginal tax bracket over 40%. You go, how can that be? And I don't wanna go through the math of it, but it's, it's all in how you, when you chose to take social security versus some of your IRAs. So you would do planning for that. It's not hard, but I just it's more than we want to go in today. If you're affluent, um, that's when you get into the things that really we have talked about is figuring out um, your drawdowns where you take it up to your next marginal tax bracket, that kind of thing, converting off chunks of Roth. And by the way, when's a good time to do Roth is both do it so it whatever the cost of it is, is keeps you from going into your next tax bracket. But the other is a little bit of, uh, I don't like the term market timing, but there is such a thing. I did my Roth conversion last year in March. Why? Because we had the pandemic, stocks had you know collapsed. And so that was a good time to convert because that's the point at which uh, the value for tax purposes came up with the Roth conversion. So that kind of thing. Um, with the wealthy, it's almost opposite day. Because again, the issue becomes a 40%, I call it a cliff tax because it's, there's, it doesn't marginal up to it, it's 40%. And realize that's gonna to apply to more people possibly uh, because of what's happening in Congress. And so there you're trying to avoid that 40% tax as much as anything because you have other sources of income. So what you're gonna start doing is looking at things like taking your IRAs now, uh, and paying tax on it, um, using, and again, at the time of this recording, uh, we still don't have a tax law, but for now you can do things like grant or trust, which are the most uh, counterintuitive concept in the world. In fact, you're called intentionally defective trusts hmm. because what you do is you make it defective so that you have to pay tax on it. But that's a good thing because every time you pay tax on income, it's the equivalent of a gift to your kids because if it's $100,000 and you pay, you know, 30% tax on it, they get $100,000 rather than $70,000, but it's not subject to gift tax. So uh, grant or trust are a good example. Grats, you've heard that term, you know, and the Waltons, the reason we always hear about the Waltons in the news and how many billions of dollars they have is because Sam did some incredible planning way back when with grants where I won't go through the whole concept, but essentially you can move out a lot of money to the next generation without paying any gift or estate tax. The gift, the estate tax is 40%. So you're trying to do your planning to avoid that tax, even if it means paying income tax, because remember, someone's going to pay income tax. 
someone's going to pay it. So you might as well pay that and it becomes a gift. So at this point, um, things like making gifts work pretty well for anybody that thinks they're going to be in the federal estate tax range. If instead they're more affluent, but not really worried about it, then it's opposite day going the other way because they may want to hold on to assets because then the basis of the asset steps up to date of death value and that helps the beneficiaries. So you really want to look, are you middle, are you affluent, or are you wealthy? That's a really good frame. You know, you talked about grats. I think those are grantor retained annuity trusts. You also talked about intentionally defective trusts. I was curious, at, at what level of wealth does it start making sense to consider using those kind of tools? Is that really only at that wealthy bracket where you are going to bust the federal state tax exemption limit, which is like $23.5 million at the time of this recording? Or are there any scenarios where the affluent may want to consider? Generally, the answer would be yes. Your real, your your bogey really is the uh, the exemption level for the federal state tax. The one uh, glaring example or a, a exception I would make is a owner of a closely held business hmm. because their situation is their business is their retirement, and they may have kids in there, and so you get into the issue of am I actually going to have a liquidity event where I'm going to have money, <laughs> and so um, it, it can pop up in value very quickly. And you can get into quite the battle with the IRS over the value of it. So grants, intentionally defective trusts, some of those things, um, irrevocable life insurance trusts, some of those things that you normally would associate only with hitting the exemption, you might move down a little bit for the business owner because um, they have this huge pop-up of value and they want to get the clock going with the IRS. If the IRS is going to challenge the value of that stock, let them do it now, not after you're dead. Yeah, that's a fair point. So it sounds like uh, outside of that exception, if you're you know just a um, uh, an attorney that makes a lot of money, or you know you were an early engineer at uh, a technology company that IPO'd and you you got a windfall of IPO yeah. stock, but not enough to again bust that federal state tax limit, then you're probably not needing, and you're, you don't have a closely held business, and you're probably not needing uh, some of these kind of advanced trust uh, tools. Is that right? Yes, I agree with that. Um, a lot of that work is just not worth doing. <laughs> and let me distinguish one other thing is now people, because of COVID-19, are thinking more about estate planning. So I'm not saying that trusts and that kind of thing should be ignored. I'm talking about the trusts like the intentionally defective ones that have tax reasons. There's still a lot of reasons to use trust for the affluent. For sure, for sure. Okay, so everything we've been talking about um, relating to optimizing retirement drawdowns, <clears throat> you know, um, how does the consideration set change for, uh, or additional considerations crop up for early retirees, people who have fired or plan to fire, who therefore may effectively be planning for two, up to two back-to-back 30-year retirements? Uh, or up to 60 years total. Uh, any additional considerations that groups at this kind of younger age that are retiring this early should um, be thinking about? Yes. Now, as I said before, but I'll say it again, is at least consider protecting your human capital, mm-hmm. or at least make the decision. If you say, no, I'm done with this, I'm from now on, you know, you're going to do something that maybe it's going to be volunteer work. Fine, but make that decision proactively, know what you're doing. So I said that. The other is, um, if you're going to have that long retirement, I think you have to be more thoughtful about uh, inflation and cost of living. You really have to start early. And actually, you have the opportunity to start early, because some of these ideas only work if you are around a while. So um, ideas like um, tips, you know, uh, inflation protected uh, treasuries, right now, they're selling at this premium where you go, why would anybody do it? You're kind of cutting yourself out of the market, but it might be a great idea for someone that's young enough because eventually they'll catch up and and be useful. Um, Be looking at um, also related to that, the, um, I guess I call it the longevity tale again. If you're sitting there in your mid forties or approaching 50 and and plan to do this, you could get um, what's called a deferred income annuity, which basically doesn't kick in anything. You don't get your money back, you can't commute it, the money's gone. But what it does is it starts paying out an income at 70 or 75 or 80. Um, That's a pretty cheap buy when you're young and it covers that tail because that could be a long way down uh, down there. So 
those are the additional things you have just because you're looking at that. So you really have to deal with inflation and the longevity tail. And again, paying attention to health insurance because um, that's a pretty big expensive issue, particularly um, because it's a political football and so you don't know where it's gonna go. So have some kind of money set aside People don't always realize that even when they hit Medicare, they're going to have a lot of health expenses. So you have to have money put aside to cover the health risk. All right. This has been a really enlightening conversation. Um, I, I've really enjoyed it. Where can listeners find out more about you and what you're up to? Well, uh, I'm at the American College of Financial Services. And so the nice thing uh, with us is we are there simply to be thought leaders. Uh, so you can basically do a few things. One, you can just Google and um, the American College and see some of the great things we're doing. If you're an advisor, consider a retirement income certified professional. If you're a consumer, the other thing is um, I write for Forbes. So uh, that's in the retirement channel. And there are a lot of great writers in the retirement channel for Forbes. Um, it's really make it, make it something fun. Uh, one of the things that people do when they retire, or I suggest to them, is... Um, find new things that are your job. One of them is to stay healthy. So suddenly when you retire, you know, eating right and working out, make it part of your job. Well, also kind of staying up on these things, you have a little more time. So, you know, get on the Forbes or Retirement Channel or I write for Kiplinger. There's a lot of good sources and, you know, it doesn't have to uh, cost anything. And uh, finally, it doesn't have anything to do with me. But uh, again, some aspects of retirement are DIY. Others are get some help. All right. Well, we'll be sure to link to um, this resource in the show notes. Uh, Steve, thanks so much for uh, chatting with us today. I really look forward to sharing this with our audience. Thanks, Andrew. I've enjoyed it. Cheers. Take care. All right. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's guest interview and got a lot of value and insights from it. If you like this episode, please hit that subscribe button to get new episodes automatically sent to you. Would love for you to not miss any episodes because the Hack Your World podcast has a mix of action-packed solo shows where I walk you through specific strategies and tactics step-by-step, as well as guests who share their expertise about specific areas of personal finance, and finally, profile interviews of business owners who are trying to turn their side hustles into fully financially self-sustaining passive income streams. We break down exactly what they do, how they do it, and how much they're earning. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of that great content. Also, would love if you could help me out and take 30 seconds to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a podcast review. It helps to support this podcast and it helps other people who are looking for topics like this find the podcast. And I really appreciate it if you could take a minute and just leave an honest review. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Hack Your Wealth podcast with Andrew Chen. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes and check out hackyourwealth.com for all our latest content.